0: Good morning, Grace. Good morning. Before we uh, get started in uh, today's message, our, our final in the series, I just want to give you a little bit of update in terms of where we are with the building and that kind of process. Uh, we, we, I think, I shared with you last week to pray for us as we interviewed architects. We kind of gathered uh, some proposals from about four different multiple architects, but we narrowed it down to four whom we saw had experience dealing with the types of projects that we were heading into in terms of the uh, building. And then those four, we interviewed this last week. So our leadership team was here Thursday night and Friday night. We interviewed two architects each time. Uh, and it was really a, an extremely healthy process because it gave us a real clear picture as they came in and presented for uh, part of the time. And then we had a number of questions that we were asking them in terms of how they operated and what kinds of things they saw as challenges and really what they kind of brought to the table and how they would manage the project because the architect does a lot of that not just designing but overseeing the construction aspect of it as well and making sure it's uh, going properly and so this is a, a big decision for us as a church we wanted to make a wise decision and our whole team was there both those nights uh, to be part of those to help us make a good decision. So our our prayer is that we can narrow it down and by December, uh, which is when our next leadership team meeting is, we would choose that architect. And then in January when we have our annual meeting, we'll present that to the congregation uh, with some information prior to that to make that decision of yes, we want to go forward with these uh, people. And I think that'll start the design uh, phase of of our building which begins to get exciting when we start to see something tangible coming about so if you'd continue to pray for us uh, it's a very exciting time and we we're excited about the guys that came and presented all of them had some great things to do and i think what we've narrowed it down to at this point uh, any of them that we chose would do an excellent job with the project so now we're just deciding who do we feel would be the best uh, team to work with as we go forward so please pray for us as we uh, continue down that journey. Uh, as we continue our series today, actually we finish it up today, we've at, had several months through this fall uh, dealing with two very sensitive topics in the area of wisdom, one being our sexual relationships within marriage and, and even as singles, how we approach that topic, and we spent several weeks dealing with that, and then recently we've been in our financial part of it. Two very difficult topics that are often aren't spoken of, or aren't addressed well in many contexts. And it's been great to see how uh, small groups, how people have have taken this topic and run with it and really allowed it to be something that shaped and molded them in their lives. And today we wrap that up uh, in the financial side, really with a kind of a big picture of what do we do as we've built these various things into our lives? How do we steward then uh, the wealth, which is the stuff that God entrusts to us, As we put these things into practice. So we're going to look at that and just see three principles today that will help us be wise stewards of the possessions that God gives to us. And and doing that in a way that honors him and is best for us as well. So if you have your Bibles with you, we'll be in Proverbs today. I didn't put a specific passage because we'll use several different Proverbs throughout So if you just open up to the book of Proverbs, you can kind of jump to the passages that we go to or you can follow along on the screen and jot down the references if you want to uh, for future reference. So let me pray and we'll jump into today's final message. Father, we're just thankful for the wisdom that you give, Lord, that you didn't just stick us on this earth and leave us to figure out uh, life on our own. Uh, but through many wise people whom you inspired and, and wrote words through and collected them through your people, you have collected uh, all kinds of truth about life that you've passed on for generations uh, for us to benefit from. And Lord, I pray that as we open your word and look at these principles today, that you would open our hearts, that your Holy Spirit would illuminate our eyes and our minds to the things that we see, Lord, and that we would have the courage to put them into practice in a way that honors you and is a blessing uh, to the place in which you have put us on this earth. So, Lord, we open up this time for you to speak to us and teach us and guide us. And we ask this in your son's name we pray. Amen. Wisdom for managing possessions. Today I'm going to make it real simple. I'm just going to share with you a, a basic principle or point, and then I'll show you the Proverbs that kind of speak to that particular point. So you can jot down what's helpful for you, and I pray you come away with some principles that will help us, each of us, be stewards as we go forward. So here's your first point. Oh, I went too far. When I live wisely, God builds and protects my wealth. When I live wisely uh, in regards to my finances, God builds and protects my wealth. And I want to show you this from a bi- biblical perspective because when we talk about building wealth and seeing it from a biblical perspective, we're not talking about God's going to make you rich like we often see. Wealth was really having the provisions you need to do what God's called you to do. It's, it was what you needed to sustain life and to do those things. And so as we live wisely, God builds that for us. If we live wisely and he protects it For us, We're going to see that in some of these principles, and then we'll talk about what it looks like when we do that. So here's one of the principles we looked at, or one of the Proverbs. And we talked about this earlier, but it's really one that we should keep with us as we go. Precious treasure and oil are in a wise man's dwelling, but a foolish man devours it. This is part of that principle that we learn to live on less than what we make. Meaning, we aren't foolish enough to spend everything that God gives us, thinking that we only are living for the day. He's saying the wise person is someone who lives on less than what they earn or what they have coming in, so that they have some things stored for the future that's uncertain, for uh, helping and and being generous with others. It's not consuming everything, thinking that everything God entrusts to us is simply for us to consume. We've learned about that, and that's a very important principle that we put into practice no matter what stage of life we're in or what our income is. Another one is along those same lines. One pretends to be rich yet has nothing. Another pretends to be poor yet has great wealth. Notice the foolish person in the top who pretends to be rich yet has nothing is really concerned about a lifestyle they want to portray a certain lifestyle but if you're really tapped into what wealth is in terms of their life they don't have a whole lot this is very true of of many of us today it doesn't matter your income you can be in these spots no matter what your income is in fact statistics often show this that people who make two hundred thousand dollars and more there's people who have a household income of over two hundred thousand dollars and yet they're one or two days Or excuse me one or two months away from bankruptcy if they were to lose their job because they consume everything that they have coming in and they've leveraged it with debt in an unhealthy way they have a lifestyle that looks like they're rich but true wealth is more of a sustainability and a health for the long haul and a perspective towards all of life not just about having stuff And so they pretend to be rich, but they really have nothing. Likewise, there's others who pretend to be poor, yet have great wealth. What that's saying is that they live a lifestyle that seems very simple. And you might think, oh, they don't have a whole lot. But the the truth is, they choose to handle it properly and don't depend on it. They don't spend it all on themselves. And they're leveraging it as if they're stewards of that wealth, not owners of the wealth. And so another proverb we see that... Speaks to these things. Here's the one about protecting. In the house of the righteous, there is much treasure, but trouble befalls the income of the wicked. We notice this a lot when when we are living month to month and spending and consuming everything we have. When we act foolishly and God compares that foolishness to even the wickedness, when we aren't handling and relating to our resources properly, it seems like trouble is constantly befalling what we do have. It just goes out faster and faster and faster. And yet the person who stewards and sees their resources as a stewardship, God has this way of protecting them and taking care of them and guarding it. Not from ever experiencing difficulties, but he protects what's yours when you take care of it and you steward it well. And you're often exposing yourself to troubles when we don't relate to it properly. The key here in this passage is, is this idea of increasing our standard of living every time your income increases proves to be very dangerous. It's very much a Western mindset of relating to money. We think that our greatest blessing is increasing our standard of living, and that's how our quality of life will increase. We have to learn to separate the two. They don't go together. An increased standard of living does not directly result in an increased quality of life in fact statistics actually show that there's a a a point where the two go in the opposite direction the more your income increases and the more your standard of living increases your quality of life actually begins to go down when you continue to increase your standard of living because you take on more and more stuff and that stuff begins to own you rather than you owning your stuff I want to share with you some stories that that reveal just these principles in general. I've shared some of examples of poor stewardship in this series, but let me share some positive ones. And these come, again, from some unique scenarios where you'd think people would have plenty of money, but it's not about money again. It's about how we relate to money. Uh, Much has been said, this is from a Sports Illustrated article, about NFL players squandering away their hefty salaries and going broke. A Sports Illustrated report asserted that within two years of retiring 78% of NFL players face financial stress however the following is the story of three NFL players who made calculated decisions to ensure their financial security after the game ended I don't know anything about whether these guys are believers or not I don't suspect they are from things I've read about them elsewhere but my point is more so this the wisdom principles that God gives in his word, are practical skills for living properly, you can apply them whether you're a believer or not because he's designed them for how this world operates. So you can be wise in putting some of these things into practice. Whether you trust God or not, you're putting his principles into practice. You can benefit from them. You're going to see that even in them. Obviously, there's an eternal perspective that they lose out on, and that's even more important. But I'm just talking about just the general practical nature of wisdom and how it impacts us. At the age of 10, Rod Smith. So here's three players that have had a different perspective, one that we see is consistent in what we've learned at the age of 10, Rod Smith sat in front of his television watching an episode of Where Are They Now on HBO. At the time, Smith didn't recognize the impact the scene being portrayed on television on the television screen would have on his future. He says, there was a guy on the show who played in the NFL and then became homeless. When I saw that, I thought, when I get into the NFL, there's no way I'm going broke. He was 10 years old as he watched that, right? Every kid thinks they're going to be in the NFL at 10 years old but 14 years after watching that HBO documentary Smith finished an impressive collegiate career at Missouri Southern State University there he completed three degrees in business economics and marketing Smith also excelled on the gridiron going so far as being named a finalist for division twos version of the Heisman Trophy Yet, when the final name in the 1994 NFL Draft was called, Smith's name was not announced. Thus, it was without any bells, whistles, glitz, or grammar that Smith's three-time Pro Bowl appearance and 14-year NFL career began. And this beginning would foreshadow the way in which Smith secured his financial stability. Although he was not drafted, Smith signed with the New England Patriots in 1994. The team released him prior to the season, but he was thereafter signed to the Denver Broncos practice squad. I didn't get drafted, so that helped me build financial stability. Think about that. He didn't get drafted, and he saw that as something that helped him build financial stability. Very different from how most of us would see it. And here's how he describes that. I had a chance to be in the NFL, but not a chance to be in the NFL lifestyle because I didn't have the income for it Smith's notes that one way that young NFL players get into financial trouble is by attempting to keep up with the financial luxuries of other players in the locker room I didn't come into the NFL with money he says I started on the practice squad making sixty thousand dollars my first year it was a whole lot of money to me but nothing in comparison to the lifestyle of the guys I was around in the locker room As the size of his contract grew during the course of his career, Smith remained relatively frugal. You see his application here? He cites his frugality as being the basis for his current financial stability six years into his retirement from the NFL. The most luxurious thing I bought was my house. I wasn't a big jewelry or car guy. I don't have Ferraris and Bentleys. I had a home. Uh, I had a motto that I live by, there are two places I want to look good, at home and at practice. Most guys get caught up in looking good on the streets, and if you have to show people you have money, you're not rich, Smith said. You see that principle we talked about? Pretending to be rich, but actually being poor. In retirement, Smith continues a practice he began in the Broncos locker room when Mike Shanahan was coaching of mentoring younger players about financial responsibility. My lifestyle, he says, hasn't gone down at all. It's actually getting better because of some of the things I've done outside of football. That's one example. Here's a shorter one. Rob Gronkowski, who's a a great tight end with the New England Patriots, 26 years old. This article says he has more money than he knows what to do with, yet he spends none of it. In his five years on the gridiron, Gronkowski has earned more than $10 million with his NFL salary and hasn't spent a dime. According to NBC Sports, Gronkowski prefers to live off his endorsement and appearance income, reserving his NFL money for retirement savings. Gronkowski recently revealed his spend trift ways. To this day, I still haven't touched one dime of my signing bonus or NFL contract money, he said. I live off my marketing money and haven't blown it on any big money, expensive cars, expensive jewelry, or tattoos, and still wear my favorite pair of jeans from high school. He's obviously not married yet. (laughs) He he probably said he's wearing the same underwear as well, but they just didn't put it in the article. (laughs) Typical guy, right? With a salary most of us could only dream of, Gronkowski understands that money isn't everything, and keeping up with the Joneses isn't always the pathway to happiness. And there's Alfred Morris from the Redskins. He said this, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And if it's broke, fix it. That's the attitude of this 26 year old star running back for the Washington Redskins and he lives by it. Morris drives a car nearly as old as he is, even though he can afford much better. Morris's rising net worth is currently $2 million, more than enough money to buy a new ride, but instead, he prefers to drive his trusty 1991 Mazda 626. Morris doesn't fall for the temptations of buying new possessions just because he can afford to. And like many financially successful people understand, he knows not splurging means saving more. Now, these guys may not have the overall picture of what they need for their wealth or for their possessions, but they've put into practice and understood some very key principles that God speaks about as well. It's living on less than what he provides. Because a wise person is always considering the future. Not just your earthly future, your temporal future, but your eternal future as well. And realizing that you're a steward of that. Here's two things I just want to share with you under this point that are really important to just remind ourselves up of living wisely in that sense if I don't do this if I fail to, to see and live wisely with God in this particular area of living within my means it does two things to me it, it fails to consider my future it fails to consider your future we just keep raising our standard of living every time we get a raise in our income and it totally neglects my future it causes me to be a fool when I consider my future The second thing it does is it fails to see myself as a steward rather than an owner. See, we have to come to a place in our lives as stewards, as God's children, to say, does God really want me to spend this additional money on raising my lifestyle? Is that really why God has given me additional income in my life? Is it really all about me? Or is there something else he would want me to do With the increased goods that he's bringing into my life you see a steward thinks differently than an owner and when we don't put these principles into practice we begin to think like we own and possess everything that we have and then it begins to possess us second principle we see is what do we do with some of these things as we think long term uh, about managing our possessions. And this is a thought we see in the scriptures as well. When I live wisely, I will transfer wealth thoughtfully. When I live wisely, I will transfer wealth thoughtfully. The statistics say that in the next several years or decade, uh, uh, over 10000000000000 $10 to $15 trillion dollars will transfer from one generation to another, from baby boomers to Uh, generation X or the next generations coming down in inheritance as they're transferring that's a a phenomenal amount of money and the Bible talks about the transfer of wealth with some basic principles that I think are helpful for us to understand when we think about managing uh, our resources this passage says this a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children but the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous So a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. Now here's the problem we have uh, with understanding this verse. When we approach it from a modern Western world, we see that and immediately we think, man, I got to accumulate a whole bunch of stuff, a large inheritance so that I have so much that I have enough to hand down even to my grandchildren. That's how we approach it because of our modern view of wealth. That's not how the Bible intended it and that's not how it would be interpreted by a person in that context or in that culture in fact if you study the word inheritance in the old testament it predominantly refers to the land that the israelites had and it was an inheritance that god gave to them when he brought them into the land and so your inheritance as an israelite was to hand your land down to your children That was the means by which your family line, because every family line was allotted a certain amount of land. And if you were a good steward of it, not only did that land allow you to work and provide for your family, but you taught the next generation, and it was then there for them to make that same living. And when you were foolish, you lost your land and it went to someone else. You either sold to them, you sold it to them, and you would actually become a slave to them for six years. On the seventh year, God said you were to release them and allow them to start again, so that all of it, you know basically you wouldn't have that situation in Israel. But if you were foolish and didn't handle your land well, you wouldn't plant or you wouldn't work it, and when harvest came, you had nothing, and you'd have to go to your neighbor and beg. For something from him and usually what they would do is they say okay I'll give you this lump sum from my crop but now your land becomes mine and he begins working your land he makes the profit off it and you work for him until you've paid off your debt and then you are free to go back and work your land inheritances were very different than how we see them today and so when it says a wise man or a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children it's not saying that you accumulate so much stuff that you're able to pass it down even to your grandchildren you have so much stuff. That's not what it's talking about. Wisdom in their day was a person who worked the land that they had, and then the inheritance they gave their kids was they, they stewarded their land in such a way that they still had it. And not only did they still have it, but they you think about an agricultural uh, system, when you had sons that were born to you, guess what they became as they got a little older? workers they helped you work and if you were wise you taught your kids how to farm and how to work that land and so the wise inheritance wasn't just giving them something it was giving them a means to make a living that would outlast any inheritance you could possibly give them so not only did you maintain your land but you taught the next generation, your kids, how to work that land. And in, in their lifespan, they would have seen their grandkids come into that system as well. And so now two generations still have the land, and two of them have learned how to work the land, and your inheritance is that you've given them a means to make a living, and you've taught them the skills to make a living that outlasts your inheritance by far. You see the difference in that mindset? And it goes along with this principle here. You could either hand down that kind of inheritance, that was the wise person's inheritance, or the fool you see in the Old Testament was one who who was lazy, who didn't steward his land, and then ended up going into debt, became a slave to his neighbor. And when you were in slavery paying off your neighbor, when your children were born, they were born into that slavery as well. They were part of the package. They would work that other guy's land until your debt was paid off, And then they were freed to actually work their own land. So that didn't last very long. It didn't even make it to your children, whereas the wise man passed it down multiple ways. We see this in another way, too, and this kind of gives us the other parameter. An inheritance gained hastily in the beginning will not be blessed in the end. Meaning an inheritance that you get really quick at the beginning won't be blessed in the end. See, an inheritance in Israelite times couldn't be handed down just like that because it still had to provide for the family. If you want to take that other passage as being, oh, you just got to have so much that you hand down to two generations, if you want to take a single passage like that and interpret it that way, then you'd have to apply all the Old Testament principles for how an inheritance was passed down. It was only passed down to the sons. It was a double portion for the oldest son. And you don't understand why that was done in that way until you understand how inheritances were passed down in family lines back then. You can't just pick and choose one part of the Bible and not apply all of it. So what that's saying is that a true inheritance is a means by which your children can make a living and you've passed the skills on to help them do so. When we give them an inheritance in a hasty way, meaning it comes too quickly, it says it won't be blessed in the end. You can't hand down a proper inheritance just like that because skills take a while to be developed to where they can make a living and then they bless you for many, many years to come. You know, many people have addressed this in different ways, but... One of the the principles we see is that we do more harm to our children when we leave large inheritance to them than when they don't understand the wisdom and discipline of work, nor do they have the maturity to steward those resources. The statistics play this out. In fact, here's a book. It's interesting if you ever want to read something about this. The Legacy of Inherited Wealth is a book that's written by uh, two heiresses, and they studied the stories of 17 adult heirs who received large inheritances. So the story, this book just tells their story in the legacy of inherited wealth. And here's how they describe it. They describe both the blessings and the cursings of receiving a large inheritance. The stories suggest that the curses far outweigh the blessings. When you read their stories coming from them personally, even they testify to the truth of this God's word. Cornelius Vanderbilt, a very wealthy man, said this, inherited wealth is as certain death to ambition as cocaine is to morality. Henry Ford said this, fortunes tend to self-destruction by destroying those who inherit them. See, when I live wisely, I will transfer wealth thoughtfully. God has blessed individuals with resources he did not say that that automatically goes to someone else he holds the person that he's blessed with them responsible for what you do with it if you hand your wealth over to a fool or if you do damage by handing it over you will be held responsible for it not them i mean they'll have responsibility obviously as well but you're included in that process and god wants us to be wise with how we hand things down let me give A modern-day application. There's many, but here's just one that takes these principles and applies it to a modern-day situation. A wise inheritance by parents today would do a couple things. One is they would provide a means for their children to make a living. God designed you to work. He didn't design you to sit around and watch TV all day and have everything you need provided for you. That's a Western mindset. That ruins people. He, de- he designed you to work. So a, a healthy inheritance by godly parents is one that allows and prepares their children to work. You might do that by being a small business owner. Maybe you've built a business and you have one or two or many of your kids growing up and they've taken an interest in it and you're training them, you're handing the skills over to them, and you're not just giving it to them because they're the next in line. But they actually are working in the business, they develop the skills, they have the discipline, and now they're going to take that business and steward it for the blessing of their family and the blessing of those employees and the blessing of the community just like you did. Just like an Israelite would have done with his land. And you develop that and then you hand that over to them in time, that's a wise inheritance. It's not giving them all the profits from it and just sticking in their bank account. It's saying, here's a means. I was able to make a living for it by stewarding it. Now you have that opportunity. Another in our modern day culture that's maybe more common is an education. You need a training, some kind of training, whether it's vocational training or educational training to go on and, and, and develop a career in which you can provide for your family and be a productive blessing in your community. So parents can think about a healthy, wise inheritance in the sense of saying, I'm going to make sure I set aside monies to help my kids get the training they need to go off and work a career. I'm not talking about paying for the four to six years of partying that they want to do in college. I'm not saying you have to do that even when they're squandering it. When they're working hard and they're stewarding it, you continue to provide for them to get through there. It's the greatest inheritance you can give them is the ability to make a living and steward that. After that, you have to really be discerning as parents is it's, it whether it's going to be beneficial to leave them anything else of your wealth. It's not a right for them to have that. That becomes a wisdom choice on your part. If you see at that season of life that they are godly stewards of what they've done and they've learned how to work and this inheritance isn't going to hurt them. I'm not talking about millions of dollars. Even just the wealth from a home and some basic savings can be so much that it can be very harmful to people if they don't know how to steward it. God didn't give it to your children. He gave it to you. And maybe he wants you to steward it in a different way than simply just hand it down to them and let them manage it if they aren't wise stewards. Those are the things you need to think about biblically. Third thing and last thing on here uh, 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 that's important is when I live wisely, I will trust God only. When I live wisely, I will trust God only. Two passages talk about this. One's in Proverbs, and the one I'm going to close with is in the Gospel of Luke. It's a parable that Jesus tells. But here's one passage, real simple. Whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. The righteous have this ongoing growth, their health. You see that principle a lot in scriptures. But if we trust in our riches, it will come to a, a quick end. And then Jesus tells a parable that really captures this in a picturesque way. He told this parable saying, uh, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. So here is a man that had already had so much stored up. God's not saying, hey, don't ever store anything up for the future. This man already had lots of barns stacked, and now he's still getting more wealth, and he just tore down and made even bigger ones. He just kept piling up and piling up, kind of hoarding. And he says to himself, here's the other problem we see. And I say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. He forgot that he was created to be a productive producer in his community. That it wasn't all about entertainment or just fun. That that's not how God designed us to be. And the passage goes on to show what happened. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? And then he says, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This parable tells the other side of, of saving and, and being a wise steward. Yes, we are to save, but no, we are not to hoard and begin to trust in our riches. There's a lot of room in between there, and there's not a nice set number in terms of what that is. It's a heart issue ultimately, but here's some principles that can help us. is The wealth that I build is not to be trusted, but stewarded. The wealth that I build is not to be trusted, but stewarded. We need to learn to ask ourselves this question. Does God and is God entrusting me with this wealth simply to raise my standard of living? Is that really why he gave this to me? Oh, God, you know, I I only have three cars and now I need seven cars because I can afford it. Man, you must really want me to have more stuff, God. Because that's usually what runs through our mind when we receive more. Oh, good, I can get this now. But is that really why God entrusts us with more? Or does he have something more significant that he wants us to be part of? Something bigger than ourselves? Those are just questions that stewards ask. Here's what's so interesting about this parable. Go ahead and read it for yourself. The verses right before this parable, anyone know how this parable is introduced? It's introduced when a a couple brothers are fighting over the inheritance they're receiving from their parents. And one brother comes up to Jesus and says, Jesus, will you set my family straight? You know, because they're not handling my parents' inheritance well, and I want what's mine. I've paraphrased that a little bit, but you can read it. They're they're fighting over an inheritance. Think about that. You ever think about what an inheritance is? It's something that you've done absolutely nothing to earn. And yet when we are in line to receive one, we go after them like it's our right to have it. I see this all the time. Many of you have experienced this. When parents pass away, it's amazing how the dynamic in the next generation changes as people fight over the wealth. Even if it's junk. Even if it's stuff that's just sticking in the attic or certain things, people start fighting in families that had peace before over an inheritance that wasn't even really their right to have. It was passed down to them, but they did nothing to earn it. Those situations reveal our heart. And they reveal our trust in wealth rather than in God. You see, the the wealth that we build when we build it wisely, should not prevent me from working or serving, but they should further my opportunities to do so. When God placed Adam in the Garden of Eden, before sin entered the world, his first command to him was to work the ground and steward what I would given to you. Work is part of how God created us. And when we take a Western mindset that says, I can't wait to get enough money where I don't ever have to work again, you undermine how God created you. Now, I understand something. I'm not saying that you shouldn't ever save for retirement. I'm just saying your view of retirement should not be, how can I stop working as soon as possible to spend as many of my years simply playing on the golf course or vacationing as much of my life as I can? Retirement should be something where we supplement income that we aren't able to make in the same way as we age, and we're taking care of our needs for the future in a proper way, not in a Western mindset way. Work is what shapes us and makes us. Uh, Let me share with you just a, a, a personal story about this, and it's not even about retirement. It's just about work in general. There have been times in ministry that I've wanted to quit. It's just been really hard. Things have been difficult. Issues you're dealing with just seemed like, you know, why am I having to deal with this? You know, it's not part of what I was part of. I mean, it's other actions. It's just all this stuff. And there's times when when you're just so discouraged. You're just so, you know, going, how are we going to get through this? That you literally want to quit. I'm going to be real honest with you here because the answer is usually always Jesus. And it was Jesus, but I'm talking about in a practical way. That there were times where if I didn't need to feed seven mouths at home, I would have quit. That's how hard it was at times. The only thing, and I'm saying this from a practical standpoint, it was God that sustained me, and part of it was him using what he designed us to do to keep us going, but the only thing that sustained me was the fact that if I quit, seven people might starve because it was that hard. If someone had given me $2 $2 million, and it was just sitting in my bank account, you know what, I would—I know I would have quit. I wish I could say I was a better person. I probably would have learned in the long end, but I would have walked away. And guess what? I would have never become the person that I needed to become because part of those issues were things that God needed to change in me. And he says, Chad, you need to work because this is teaching you how to become the man I want you to become. And when we quit, when we walk away from things that are intended to shape us, we fail to become the people that God called us to become. You see, I would have learned to trust in my wealth rather than trust in that God would take me through hard times just as I say to you time and time again, God will take you through those difficult times. He wants us to steward what we have not trust it. You know, Jesus is the epitome of wisdom. He managed his possessions more wisely than any other person. Just, Just think about the principles we've learned today and think about Jesus' life. He was the richest man to ever walk the earth, yet he lived and had the appearance of being poor. Remember, we learned that. There are some who are appear to be poor but are really rich. That was Jesus in spades. He possesses a huge inheritance. Jesus does everything, and yet he'll give it only to those who do his will. Jesus isn't just going to distribute his inheritance indiscriminately to anyone in this world. He is only going to give it to those who do his will. And those who do his will, those who have trusted in him, we don't get it the moment we trust in him. We can't demand it the moment we want it. He is preparing you in this earth. And part of the challenges you go through on this earth are shaping you to be the steward that you are going to be for all of eternity. And until you're sanctified, until you're prepared, until you're glorified, and you're in a new body, and you're in his presence, you won't get his inheritance. That's why he's continuing to work in both of us so that he, just like a wise Israelite, can give us the inheritance, and train us to be the kinds of people who know how to rightly steward it for all of eternity. And when it comes to trust, Jesus trusted his Father perfectly rather than his wealth when he faced his greatest test. When Jesus was on that cross, think about what he could have did and think of what he did. Think of even how he responded when his very last possession was stripped from him even in that moment. Even his clothing, the only thing he had left in his life, was taken from him and gambled away. Jesus courageously died for you and for me because he put no trust in his stuff. He put it all in his Father. And here's what's so amazing about this. Jesus was the owner of that stuff. He owned it all. And yet he lived like he was just a steward of it. He let it be taken away from him as if he didn't own it. He let those who didn't own it, that should steward it, take it away from him. Why would he do that? So that people like you and I, who are truly stewards, who have been given everything that we have, yet sinfully act like we own it could be part of his family. See, no one who thinks they own it in this life will be part of stewarding what God has in the next life. If we don't come to recognize that it's his, if we don't bow our knee to his son and say, Jesus, you own it all, and by your grace, you let me into this kingdom at all, we'll never truly have an inheritance to steward forever. Jesus did that for you and for me. He acted like a steward when he was truly an owner so that we who think we're owners can learn to let go and recognize we're stewards. If you trust him, not your ability to steward, not your ability to change, not your ability to be different but if you stop and begin to lean into him and see what he did for you in his life and in his death and you understand your need for him then he will begin to change your heart he'll begin to transform you into someone who's not possessed by stuff that's not yours but is free instead to simply steward it your good for your future but for his glory so let me ask you this last question how sad would it be if we spent five weeks these last five weeks understanding what wise stewardship looked like only to leave here today and never put any of it into practice Only to leave here today and walk right back into our foolish ways of managing our stuff and experiencing the same painful things we've experienced over and over again. How sad would that be? But in contrast... How great would it be if six months from now, if one year from now, if five years from now, if 20 years from now, you instead look back at this season in your life, when you learned some things about God and stewardship and your stuff, that you said, man, that season changed my life. I started living differently then. And it has been a total change for me over these 20 years. And it's totally changed where I'm at now because of decisions I made then. How amazing would that be if that characterized you? Imagine a church that had the wisdom to know these things and the courage to put them into practice. How that church might change the future of its families and its city. Let's pray. Father God, we are grateful for these truths. Lord, they're so simple. They're really not rocket science. But yet they're so hard, God, because they they dig into the very heart of our brokenness, of our desire to own or our desire to hang on to or our desire to trust in things rather than trust in you. Jesus, thank you that you modeled for us what it truly looks like and didn't just set an example but you offered yourself as a sacrifice because Lord we've blown it I've blown it I continue to blow it at times so thankful that my security in you God is not based on my performance but on Jesus performance but Jesus as I look at you as I see your life as I lean into your life changes my heart. It shows me a love that's like no other love I've ever experienced in this world. And little by little, you make me the steward you desire me to be. And it's for my good and for your glory. Lord, make us a church that relates to our resources the way Jesus related to them. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.